Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Emily, how was your week? It was pretty rough, to be honest. I've had my two-year COVID anniversary. And for that, I had, you know, a really nice, deep dip into the depths of long COVID. Something happened last week. I either got food poisoning or gastroenteritis, or I had a really bad allergic reaction to something I ate. And we always talk about how if you have something, it brings out your long COVID symptoms. Well, I've been on a kind of down since then. So I've had... It's the, it's the tremors that I find really, really tiring. And I find it really difficult to sleep when I've got the tremors going through my body. But I've also had real joint pain and muscle aches that I don't regularly have. A lot of the stuff, the dizziness and things comes and goes. But the real joint pain, I haven't had that before. And that's, I mean, I feel like I'm about 142. <laughs> it's just miserable we need to do an episode on the tremors I feel like that's an area that we need to follow up on yeah it was interesting because I was talking to a friend the other day who was saying I don't know I wonder if I've got long COVID and I was describing the tremors and she was just saying but that, that's what I have that's what I have and I and I didn't know what that was from I'm fairly sure that it's a it's because it's like a weird pulsating in your cells like my whole I lie down at night and my whole body is shaking like it just I it's horrible. And it's something that you can see. Other people can see you shaking. Yeah, so it's not made up. <laughs> no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Because sometimes you can feel internal tremors, which are different. But like when we speak sometimes, I will see your hands just really just shaking. And it's, you know, we haven't really covered that. And I think, I don't know what specialty that would be, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, I don't know what specialty it is, whether it falls under the neurological most likely. Oh, um, just one other thing to tell you about my week. I did have my, um, two years in, I have got a long COVID clinic appointment and I had my... Wow. Mm-hmm, and I had my pre-assessment questionnaire over the phone and they once again gave me the questionnaire for post-hospitalised patients that I'd completed however many months ago for the GP. So... I'm I'm seeing it all over social media. I'm not convinced that this is going to be helpful at all. I'm not going to go in, you know, thinking negatively. But if they are still providing us with a questionnaire that doesn't gather the majority of my symptoms, we got to the end of the questionnaire, she said, is there anything we haven't talked about? And I said, we haven't discussed the majority of my symptoms. You've asked me a questionnaire that is relevant if I've been intubated. You've asked me questions about my throat and my breathing. I'm not 80 years old and I was never in hospital. So I'm not that hopeful that these clinics are really getting a grasp on what's going on with with us, with us people who were fit and well and thought we didn't have comorbidities. Well, lucky you, I still don't have one. And when I did research about the local long COVID clinic, the main specialties was physical therapy and Mm. how to get back to work. Hmm. And those were the two specialties. Doesn't sound great, does it? You know, it doesn't. And I think it's unless you're attached to a hospital, then you can perhaps get more actual physicians look at you. The kind of multidisciplinary team that is set as the gold standard at UCLH. Well, I'm sorry, really sorry you had a bad week. You did have a couple of good weeks, though, prior. Yeah, and I said that to you, didn't I? Yeah. The crash was a real reminder that I had had a couple of good weeks. Anyway, my love, how are you? I am actually not too bad. Great. Ex- except for my tongue, which is still weird. I have kind of a sore areas on my tongue, but no ulcers. And it feels kind of swollen. That's been around now for, whew, I'd say, a good month. Hasn't really gone. Um... But I'm trying this new fasting protocol where I'm basically not eating anything. (laughs) 
like <laughs> proper fasting. And I do feel much better. My skin looks clearer. Well, I'm not sleeping, but that's for other reasons. Um, yeah, I'm, my palpitations have reduced. My tachycardia still, you know, when I go up and down the stairs is there, but not as bad as it was. And I, t- I always say that that's something I can live with. Yeah. Because, because I can always sit down and recover. But I don't have those weird things like the dizziness or the my ear with the creepy crawly inside or any of those symptoms I don't have at the moment. Great. So, yeah, I don't know if it's the fasting protocol or I'm just in a good couple of weeks. These, you know, this is the problem with this disease because you never know if it's just coincidence. Yeah. Or it's actually something is making a difference. Yeah, I keep a sort of diary and I put markers of certain things in there, like if I've really not managed to sleep for several days or if I've got my period. And I find it really hard to see any pattern of what triggers the dips or what might make you have the bits where you feel okay honestly i think it's any other infection even a very mild one does really just create a crash yeah and it's you know what are we going to do we can't live in a bubble we can't live in a bubble so this week um we got to speak with Dr. Stephen Deeks. Uh, he's a professor of medicine in residence at the University of California in San Francisco. What he has spent his life doing is basically looking at HIV. Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it? The, the the number of people that have gone from HIV or taken the sort of HIV expertise and started research in this space. Yeah, and it also kind of correlates with this idea that it's a immune system malfunction. Yeah. Which is what HIV is. Explain to us how that background in HIV and infectious diseases led to you pivoting to work and look at long COVID. Um, all right, well, that's an interesting story. So back in uh, uh, March of 2020 when the world imploded, um, we had a very active program studying how HIV, a chronic viral infection, affects long-term health. And we've been studying the impact between HIV, inflammation, and health, you know, for the past 20 years or so. And we built a big network of study participants, um, but also across across the world, essentially, uh, laboratory-based scientists are, are helping us untangle all these all these riddles. So in the third week of March, the city of San Francisco shut down, we shut down, and we had this big program, and Michael Peluso, a colleague of mine, decided to repurpose that program uh, to study how SARS-CoV-2, which was exploding in San Francisco, affected long-term health. We had no idea at the time you know, whether or not SARS was going to result in something that was two weeks or, or was going to have a persistent effect. But we figured, why don't we use our skills and our resources, bring people in, consent them, collect a lot of blood, ask them a lot of questions, and then just follow them for the next few years to see what happens. And that's what we did. And we built a cohort called Link, and we're now following about 400 people. That's amazing, because no one, no one was looking beyond the initial chronic acute illness that's very special so those people came in right at the beginning you know i think it was like march 20th that we basically designed the study and we were enrolling in april obviously long COVID wasn't a thing then and, the, and everybody was just focused on on what was happening in the hospitals but we knew from our experience with hiv and also with ebola with with lyme disease with a whole variety of different infections that a subset of people might in fact actually have persistent symptoms. So we're vaguely aware of this. And that's why we sort of tailored our, our cohort to sort of study this. And, and who were those people that you brought in? How did you select them? Was it just that they had been infected with COVID? Or, or what was your selection process for the study? Well, at the time, again, everybody in the, in the world was studying people in the hospital. Yeah. And there was actually, quite honestly, a lot of competition to study people in the hospital. And we thought the real action was going to be in people who are not in the hospital. So we really reached out to the community and got people um, who were basically, some of them are minimally symptomatic and 
and so forth. So we brought as many of those people in as we could. So it was primarily a, a cohort of people who were not hospitalized and eventually people who were actually never really symptomatic. That's also fantastic, isn't it, Noreen? It is. So many people that we speak to, the yeah. COVID infection was not was not that severe. And from that time, the majority of people, as you say, they were concentrating on the on the acute phase. And then subsequently, they concentrated on post-hospitalized cases. Even today, a lot of the people and researchers that we're talking, they're gathering their people who were in hospital because that's who they have data on. So this is fantastic. And it's so early. Literally, I haven't spoken to anyone who started anything that early. And so since we started people that early, we actually now have, um, you know, we're going to have two years of follow up in the next month or so um, of the first cohort, the first wave. And that's also fantastic, the length of time, because the, these other studies look at people for three months or, right. or you know, so, sort of three months post-infection, but then study them for three months. Yeah. That uh, length of study. When did you first realize that there was something long-term happening? Well, the, 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 first, the first time I realized was probably around April or so when we, the first cohort came in, there was this this group of friends who were young and healthy and active and i think they went skiing up in the mountains in the end of february and they all sort of got infected and a few of them a couple months later were quite disabled so this was around the time also i think on social media uh these stories began to get passed around so we had a first inkling that that subset of people were having residual problems from these you know young healthy people who really should have been particularly healthy who were actually really struggling you know, and that was probably in April, early May, we began to talk about this. And I think you guys probably know this better than I, but around that time, right, on Facebook and all the social media, there were some stories emerging. And then these advocacy groups basically popped up around that time, I guess, May, June. And then it was in August, I think, that uh, there began to have a more national discussion. There's a CDC report. And then there was, you know, I think, media attention so that's that's how this all played out by then we knew something was happening although i'd still suggest that the media attention is not vast <laughs> given how vast this might be sorry noreen so we all know that the uh, outcomes for long covid are dif- differ from patient to patient but what conclusions could you draw from your cohort of the similarities that you see going on uh, is it at an, an immune level inflammation level our role in this story is not to describe the clinical stuff because our cohort's relatively small and what we do is that we do deep deep dives into a relatively small number of people and the whole cohort was built to sort of begin to un- untangle mechanisms so i mean of the 400 or so people who are in the cohort you know maybe 100 maybe have long covid that's significant and persistent for, for at least several months. And like everyone else, we're early on, we realized that every single person was different. And But there were these bins, right? There were these flavors, these different kind of, some had the cardiopulmonary type stuff. Some had the more neurocognitive stuff. Um, you know, there, we were actually quite interested and remain interested in, this, in the whole issue of POTS, right? Um, which is a subset we we we've, we we see these different groups and, and and we struggle and our biggest problem in terms of trying to figure out what's happening is that we still do not know how to define the syndrome right we know it's there we we see it every day sometimes it's not subtle but we need a precise way to define long covid in a way that we can actually begin to do the types of outcome studies and everyone else is struggling with this, right? And so to this day, we don't really have kind of a gold standard way of saying, well, this person has long COVID, this person doesn't, this person has the cardiopulmonary version, this person doesn't. And, and without those precise measurements, those precise ways to, 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 to define the syndrome, it's actually quite hard to do the kind of clinical research that we know that you're doing. So I think the pro- first priority in a research setting is to sort of begin to sort of come up with a gold standard way to define this so that we're all talking about the same thing. And so you're looking at, uh, is it inflammation, coagulation, and the persistent viruses? Those are the sort of markers that you're looking at or that you're trying to come up with to sure. enable you to define that. 
So this is where the HIV story gets quite interesting. In HIV, people have an acute infection that can be quite profound. Um, people then go on antiretroviral therapy, the medications, and their virus basically gets shut down. So there's no real, so the virus is at very low levels. And then over time, they have these persistent issues, cardiovascular disease and so forth. Different, you know, not the kind of like quality of life disabling type of symptoms that we see with long COVID, but still evidence that the virus is having end organ effects in the brain, the heart, kidney, liver, everywhere. And in the HIV world, it took us 20 years to realize that the mechanisms are that the virus persists at low levels. It causes tissue damage. The immune system gets blown up by the virus. It never fully recovers. And you have a synergy between tissue damage, chronic virus exposure, and an immune system that doesn't work right. And this results in a situation in which we're concerned about the clotting system getting turned on and that there are small clots in the blood vessels and that collectively the inflammation and the clotting all lead to organ damage and disease. That exact story, which it took us 20 years to sort of figure out in HIV, is almost identical to what we think is happening with long COVID. And that's why the HIV research agenda and the HIV research investigators are really important in this story because we have been dealing with this for, for, for decades. And in contrast to a lot of other areas of infectious disease, we've been doing this with a lot of resources, right? HIV has always been very well funded compared to all the other sort of post infectious complications. So, so that's, so we're really deeply, deeply dependent on that HIV establishment to sort of help advance the agenda. You just hear silence at the moment because <laughs> it's not really what we want to hear, but it's good and bad. It's, a, it's amazing that we have that research and knowledge that you've built up, but yeah. for those of us with long COVID to hear that we have something that is incredibly similar to HIV is silencing. <laughs> Sobering. I think it's a good thing because I know that you guys think perhaps this is going slowly. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. We're, we're, we're a few lone voices. Yeah, in, loads in of community. the people with long COVID are complaining, oh, no one's moving, no one's doing any work. From the people that we have spoken to and the studies that we've read and the things that we have seen, we are amazed at the speed at which some people are working on this and the fact that it is so new to have the kind of knowledge and results that we have already this far down the line is quite remarkable from what from the information we've gathered yeah it is actually truly remarkable thing in turn i've never seen anything move so quickly um in terms of the research particularly with, obviously with the vaccines and the therapies you know in acute covid but even in the long covid space it took about a year right you know because of that story right the first cases in april may then the advocacy groups then I think the media was important. Then Congress, U.S. Congress, and the United, the U.K., the government in the U.K. and the government in the U.S. That there was also the bit about t- getting the primary care services on board to acknowledge that that there was something as, as in amidst that as well, which I think was one of the big problems. That didn't happen in our country. That happened in the United, you know, in England and so forth, really early. And so, still to this day, most of the best clinical information comes from the U.K because they really quickly built these clinical centers of excellence. And there are a lot of papers, still the best papers on this come from, you know, clinics in London and so forth. There's something very unique about the National Health Service that collates all the information from the country. It's, it's amazing. In fact, also the first meeting I ever went to for a long COVID discussion was sponsored by the embassy, the, the British embassy or whatever it is in San Francisco brought in a, um, this was, I think, in November 2020, brought in experts from the U.S. and the United, in the United Kingdom to sort of discuss this stuff. Um, that was the first long COVID meeting that I'm aware of. 
Um, so the Brits have been have been driving this agenda uh, for the most part, and have the government there has really invested heavily. The U.S. of course now has got this one point two billion dollar program going on, and so we're catching up. Yeah, we have something like uh, a tenth of that. I don't think our government investment is necessarily huge, but I think there are a lot of these groups that have gone out and found private funding for, for these studies. Things. Is that what happened? I think so. Yeah. A lot of the studies that we have either spoken to or that we've read about have had private funding. So do you think that long COVID is closer to HIV than to ME-CFS? Well, ME-CSF is tough. Yeah. ME-CSF has, has been so underfunded. Right. So as a biomedical researcher, I still don't really have a good sense of what we know about the biology and the pathogenesis and the clinical outcomes. You know, it's a it's it's a syndrome that is well described. I've met many people from the community, but it hasn't really other than a way to to treat, provide management for some of these symptoms. The MECSF story hasn't had a huge impact on the research agenda because it's never been funded. And therefore, they have not been able to find the mechanism, the way that you are searching for, for that. It's mainly been symptomatic treatment. Yeah. And so in, in terms of how do you actually manage some of the symptoms associated with that syndrome, it's, it's been very helpful. But it's not what I do, actually. So we're, we're sort of, again, studying the, the biology. But in the long COVID clinics, that, that experience has been very helpful. Um, and the advocacy community in MECSF has been very helpful. But in terms of the biology, there are some stories that have been informative, particularly the potential role of autoantibodies and perhaps other infections like EBV that have had an impact on the research agenda. But a lot of what we're doing really comes from the study of HIV, but also like post-Ebola. Post-Ebola is a very, to me, is quite a, and we have, an, we have a, my partner, Dan Kelly, is an expert in this, and he helps run our, our cohort. But it's also the, it's, it's an acute viral infection that goes away. And if you survive, about 10 to 20 percent have a persistent um, series of, of, of disabling symptoms, very similar to long COVID. And so those types of syndromes are actually, I think, much more informative for us. There's a clear precipitating event that's the viral infection, and there's a long term outcome that's similar. So going back to Noreen's previous question. Yes. In long COVID and looking at those areas that you've that you've looked at in HIV, are there patterns emerging in the biology of the inflammation or the coagulation? Yes. What what are you seeing that can group the different factions of of, of symptoms? <laughs> okay. Now now we get to my comfort zone. <laughs> now I can talk about something I know what I'm talking about. You sounded very much like you knew what you were talking about up until now. So in our in our 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 contribution to the to the emerging it's complicated, okay? It's complicated. And there's multiple mechanisms at play. And I and I I'll try to explain what, what we know now in a way that's relatively easy to understand. So what we have found in our cohort, and it's mainly because it's all we looked at is that if you've previously been infected with SARS-CoV-2, if you previously had COVID, just everybody, you have higher levels of inflammation than if you'd never been infected, okay? Then among those with COVID, if you have higher levels of inflammation, a very specific type of inflammation, then you're more likely to get long COVID, okay? And there's a biomarker that we're quite interested in called IL-6, interleukin-6, that seems to be in our hands predictive of long COVID. And we're particularly interested in that pathway because there are drugs to block interleukin-6 that we want to study in the clinic. So just staying big picture, we have seen inflammation as a potential mechanism for long COVID. Other groups have looked at other things. And I actually think it's all going to come together eventually. There's this group in South Africa, right? I think you, you may be aware of the story that have found these so-called microclots. Yeah, we've spoken, we've spoken to them. Yeah, no, I saw that that you previously interviewed with that team. They have they have the remarkable story that they find these very specific types of clots 
that are very small and that if you get anticoagulants, blood thinners, people get better? No. Mm, we're not seeing the people get better in general. So they're really pushing the theory. The two things that we've seen from it is yeah. that people are not getting better. And the second thing is that we're not medics, we're not scientists, but from sure. what we've learned, it doesn't yeah. seem to be a mechanism. It might be a symptom or it might be something that is happening within the body. But we don't know that if you could classify it as a mechanism. So people are having this apheresis where they're clearing their clots, right? but they're not getting better. And they're combining that with anticoagulants and they're not right. getting better. People are still unwell. I, but I saw a preprint, not peer reviewed, in which they suggested people were getting better. But I need to go back and revisit that. And, th and this, is a, this, this actually is a big problem in the field. It is moving so fast. People are very partisan about their favorite theories, we've noticed. that. Well, that's always true in, in, in academia. So you have to deal with that. People get their own pet projects and they can become quite dogmatic. But the field figures it out. So you may know more than I about some of the... But I did see a preprint suggesting that there was some potential benefit from the apheresis, from the, from the filtering and the, and the anticoagulation. It, it does deserve to be studied. Yeah, of course. And that and that and we've we've maintained that all along. Very interesting yeah. findings and needs to be studied, but let's not push the theory too hard before we have full robust study behind it. So we got two things there. We got inflammation I've discussed, we got clotting. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a third thing that's a, a major player, and that's the virus itself. So if you put a needle, if you do autopsies of people who die with months after having COVID, you can find pieces of the virus throughout the body. Okay. And that's fragments of, of it rather than it's not an active virus anymore. It's it's could be dead virus or it might be live virus. We know that if you're immunocompromised, you can have virus that replicates for many months in the body. So it's possible that everybody who's had COVID has a little bit of virus somewhere in the body. Whether it's dead or not, it can cause local damage, including inflammation, and the inflammation can cause clotting. So those are like kind of the and again, I want to—I don't want to get too too nerdy, but you got the inflammation, you got the clotting, you got the virus in the tissues. Then there's a fourth area, and that's this issue of autoantibodies, and it's related to inflammation, I think. But there is definitely a lot of interest in whether or not the acute infection can blow up the immune system in such a way that the immune response starts attacking your body. And we see this in a lot of the autoimmune disorders like lupus, right, which is very similar. And so I think there are all, there's a lot of overlap here, but there's those are kind of the four. Then there's like a fifth thing that people are really interested in, which the that there's these other viruses that we have, like Epstein-Barr virus that's in the body and everybody and it pops up when, when SARS-CoV-2 shows up and it causes problems. So I'm not going to go any further, but those are like kind of the five big buckets. And and you can imagine how each of these sort of interact to cause nerve damage or heart damage or brain damage or liver damage. So that that's kind of the, what we think is happening biologically. There, there are these, all these things are getting turned on at once and they're all interacting in complicated ways. And most people get better, but some people don't. And, and the people who don't get better, it could be many different reasons. But the root cause that starts everything off is the inflammation. Virus, infection, inflammation. Right. So you got virus, you got inflammation. You can get the autoantibodies. Um, you got virus, yeah. inflammation, clotting. Yeah. That's the pathway. Can you explain, you've described it previously, I believe, like an, a nuclear bomb going off in the immune system. Can you just explain for us that process of causing out autoantibodies? Yeah. So... 90% of what the immune system does is it turns itself off. Most of what our body is doing is to, is to keep the immune system from causing collateral damage. You get an acute infection, the immune system gets turned on, but there's a massive counter response to turn it back off because the immune system is a dangerous thing to have in your body. It's a bomb. And so what happens with SARS-CoV-2 during the acute setting is it, it, it just, it, causes such a massive amount of inflammation and immune dysfunction that all the breaks, all of all the things that we are, that are designed to turn off the immune system don't work. 
and you got these things in your body that are able to produce antibodies that attack your body that are constantly being turned off and all of a sudden that break doesn't work because the because of this nuclear bomb and all, and then the it starts spewing out these dangerous antibodies which cause that's kind of how we're thinking about this we see that in hiv as well so that the brakes on the system are broken down and need to get fixed. I think that's great. I just wanted to kind of really sort of visceral description of how you view it for our audience. Cause I think that anything that we can do like that to just try and make it accessible to, to us, create a picture of it is really important. So why do you think there are such diverse symptoms in the syndrome? I, because I think there's diverse mechanisms. So whichever one you're prone to, so Emily and I have very different symptoms, but we both share this allergic type preponderance. Like we both suffered from allergies before we got long COVID, but the long COVID sparked it to a greater degree. So we're now allergic to millions of things. But her symptoms are very different to mine. We're wondering, there must be predispositions in our body that created the inflammation to go down that certain pathway. Sure. So I'll comment two things about your case. One, you had these previous allergies. Allergies are basically the immune system's brakes not working. You're attacking pollen in the air when you should ignore it. You're responding to a medication that you should ignore, but your body doesn't. And so, so there's a pre-existing autoimmunity types issues. And we think that's going to make people more likely to get long COVID. People with HIV have the same sort of situation. And we think they're more likely to get long COVID. Another thing which I think might be a play with the two of you is is female sex, right? Because that's the most consistent predictor of long COVID is being a female. Being, and, and that we think is maybe due to what's happening on the X chromosomes. And I, I can get into the weeds on that. But that has been a very consistent observation that women are more likely to develop long COVID than men. Do you have a stat on that at the moment? I mean, it was sort of six months ago, it was looking around, well, varied between sort of 60 and 72% being female. Do you have any updated stat? The data are all over the place, because again, no one knows how to me- that all the outcomes are different, but it's probably in that ballpark. We're actually quite interested in the weeds. Would you explain the, the X chromosome and how it may impact the long COVID? Well, one story is something called the toll-like receptors, right? So this is a... Um, one of the TLRs, they're called, these are really basic parts of the immune system that turn the immune system on. And they're very nonspecific. So the, if you turn on a something through the TLR pathway, you, you'll just rev up the immune system in this very nonspecific way. The, the gene for some of those TLRs are on the X chromosome, and women have two of them, and men have one. And that's a very simple story. But it's been out there. It's been kind of like one of the leading, it's the one sort of easy to understand sort of pathway that I've heard people discuss. I've I've asked so many of my colleagues who are specialists on this issue between how sex impacts inflammation to sort of engage on the long COVID agenda, but I've not seen anyone do it yet. It's interesting that the more women get autoimmune diseases yeah, exactly what in general yep. than men. Yep. And is that the same same reason? Same story. And I actually prefer this theory to the one that it's just about hormones. <laughs> the, the hormone one might also put you play. Because um, I actually think it's younger women that are more likely to get this than older. And so premenopausal, but then... Premenopausal, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I'm sure it's, it's what this, the story I just mentioned about the X chromosomes overly simplified the truth. But um, I think it's it, it begins at least provide some groundwork to begin to, to do these studies. But I, I don't think... I don't think there's been a lot of investment previously to this long COVID story to sort of understand why sex has an impact on autoimmune inflammation. If it has, I haven't seen any good answers. Interesting. Um, you also mentioned that some of your work's done through machine learning. How is that employed in this? Well, our colleagues are using this approach. We're, we're, we're not yet revved up. You have a lovely smile, by the way, <laughs> sometimes when I say something. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I always have to be careful that I don't overstate our what we're actually doing and take credit for other people's work. No, but there's a there's a very high impact paper that was just published from the systems biology group up in Seattle. And it was the first real attempt 
at globally using, you know, all this complex biology, machine learning, and so forth, what's called omics work. So they took about a few hundred people and they studied everything. I mean, I was just blown away by everything they studied. Look at proteins. They looked at RNA. They looked at inflammation. They looked at T cells. This is the one that got a lot of press. I mean, the New York Times, Washington Post. I mean, all the newspapers had front page articles on it just about a month ago. You know, they found that um, Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, might be a, might have a role. And that's interesting because there was a major advance recently showing that Epstein-Barr virus can cause multiple sclerosis. So that's a that's a story that needs to be looked at very carefully. But did you say previously that pretty much every person has ABV dormant in their system? Yeah, m- many people do. It's it's basically just sitting in the background, not doing anything. CMV is the same way. So there's something that it, it reignites it. The the virus somehow reignites it. Reignites it. it. You could imagine like that whole nuclear bomb thing. You know that the immune system gets blown up. The brakes don't work. EBV is sitting in sitting in the body somewhere, it gets turned on and it goes to town and it makes people sick. And therefore we should find ways to treat EBV, but there aren't any really good drugs out there for EBV. And is that because EBV generally stays sitting there? So there hasn't been the a lot of research historically into removing it or has there not been the need because without reactivation, it's our bodies can handle it? Basically the latter. It's, it, there hasn't been a dramatic need. It's been associated with the development of certain types of lymphomas, but we just end up treating the lymphoma, lymphoproliferative disorder. But getting back to the Seattle story, right? There's another thing they found, which is more important, I think. All right. And this is really key. (laughs) Probably the most actionable thing that we've figured out so far in the long COVID space. They found that the amount of virus that you had during the first few weeks was predictive of having long COVID. Okay. This doesn't help people who have long COVID, but it may help prevent long COVID. Is there a correlation between the level of this, the level of RNA at, at that at that phase? Is there um, a correlation between your level of RNA and the severity of the acute phase? There's association between the level of RNA and the severity of the acute infection. Yeah. And now there's an association between the level of RNA, the amount of virus, and chronic long COVID. But how does that add up if the majority of people who have long COVID did not have <laughs> uh, severe? They found the higher amount of virus, the more likely I have long COVID. Yeah. But clearly, this is where it gets into all the, you get into all these inconsistencies. But yet there's all these asymptomatic people who presumably had very little virus yeah. who end up yeah. in long COVID. So that's where it's it's multiple mechanisms at play here. Um. And in fact, some of the worst long COVID we've seen is in people from the first wave who never really developed any antibodies. Again, I just try not to get, again, too nerdy, but, and it's a really important story that um, there are these people from the first generation who, who didn't have a PCR test because they weren't really available and who now don't have any antibodies. So they have no proof that they've ever been infected, but yet they have these classic stories that in April of 2020, they got real sick and they couldn't smell and this and that, but yet there's no way to prove that they actually ever had COVID. And, and that's a very frustrating situation because they're now struggling with long COVID, but no one believes they have long COVID because no one believes they ever had COVID. Is there yeah. so, somehow, can we detect the viral fragments or the virus in the, in the body remaining in the body? Not, not, not in any kind of clinical way. That's a research study. That's putting needles in the lymph nodes and the gut. The only way to do that. So there's that whole group of people. I'm sure you've talked to them, who never were able to prove they had COVID, and so therefore the system is ignoring them. It's very frustrating. The test that will likely figure all this out is looking at T cells. So they should have T cells that are detectable, and those those types of measurements. Right now, all the measurements are 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 looking at antibodies, but T cells are quite different. And we're now developing T cell diagnostics that will, will be very informative here. We had an interesting chat about T cells. The the impact of the virus does not seem to be that positive on the T cells. Well, they keep you out of the hospital. So that's why vaccines work. They, the, the T cells in the acute setting, T 
cells are what's keeping you out of the hospital. And that's why vaccines are generally great at keeping people from getting too sick. They don't prevent the infection. But T cells can make can cause long term damage too. So we interviewed someone who's a T cell immunologist and has basically found that uh, T cells have been greatly harmed by COVID. They've been aged and death of the T cells. Yep. So his theory or his warning was that repeated infections will create chronic disability in a lot more people than we're currently seeing because we're now in this phase of COVID where all the doors are open, all the masks are off and Omicron is not very you know, potent. It's not going to get you in hospital, but it may shorten your life long term. That story has been told with the HIV one as well, that the HIV causes T cells to age and people's, when they get into their 70s and 80s, their health declines because of it. There, there are some concerns there. On the other hand, if you live in a bubble and your immune system and your immune system never gets turned on, you have other, you have a whole other different set of problems. The yin and the yang of the immune system is very, very complicated. But I believe the T cell uh, test to test your T cells is very complicated, or it's not readily available. Not yet. It, it can yeah. be. We have T cell tests for tuberculosis that work. So it it can be developed. It just hasn't been developed. Based on your HIV work, do you think that antivirals may work then? Ah, okay. All right. Well, this, this, I think this gets back to, but back when we were talking about the amount of virus in the body during the acute setting predicts long COVID, that implies that if you had a vaccine and then get COVID, the vaccine will keep the amount of virus in the body low and you'll get less long COVID. And that's true. Been a lot of studies now that more or less have shown consistently that if you had a breakthrough infection, so you got vaccinated and infected, your risk of long COVID is low. Not zero, but lower. Both of those stories, the amount of virus in the body predicts long COVID, vaccines prevent long COVID, suggest that if you get COVID and you treat with antivirals very quickly, you'll prevent long COVID. So that's the most actionable thing out there right now. Everyone should be vaccinated, but if you still get COVID, you should try to get treatment because treatment, I think, will prevent long COVID, just like an HIV. If you get if you treat HIV early, you prevent all that bad stuff I was talking about with HIV. If you get on treatment for HIV in the first few weeks, it doesn't happen. So we need more treatment for people with acute COVID, and we need more, obviously, more people getting vaccinated. Is there any help in taking... I mean, I've had long COVID for 23 months. Is there any help in taking antivirals now? Well, we have been knocking on doors for all the major drug companies for them to give us their antivirals so we can study this. No one has, no one has done it. So if you have any, <laughs> any connections, we, we think that's a very important study to do. But I'm unaware of any data. It could be incredibly lucrative for these, for these companies. Oh, yes. <laughs> But you know, but you know why they don't want to do it? Because they're because you know these companies like making money, and they have these assets that need to be studied. the 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 problem is more regulatory. They're they always say, well, okay, we'll give you this drug and placebo, and you can figure this out, no problem. I mean, we'll give you a lot of money, but how are you going to prove it works? That is the problem. Well, if you have people like me who have had long COVID for twenty three months and they get better, it's kind of proof. But but. But I'm sorry to say, the <laughs> FDA, the FDA is not going to listen to you and say, "Hey, hey, FDA, I feel better." They're going to want something a little bit more definitive, <laughs> and that's a problem, right? Because we have to measure that, and so you have you have all these instruments, right? These like we ask a thousand questions, but it's hard to get people to. People want hard endpoints, so they so the industry doesn't engage because we don't have those kind of endpoints yet. Because we don't have those. Initial markers. You need to work out all of those initial markers that you were talking about. What we need is just a blood test. A blood test that you can have at the beginning and at the end. We need a blood test. I don't think we're going to have one. We need an, an uh, imaging, like an MRI. I don't think we're going to have one. We just need to accept the fact that at the end of the day, the only way to measure this is to ask people how they feel and not to be afraid of the data. But people are afraid of kind of the softness of that that kind of data. How do you feel? 
And it's hard to get the FDA and other people to say, okay, you ask people with a thousand questions who got an antiviral and you ask people a thousand questions who got placebo and it looks like the people who got the antiviral feel better. We go ahead and improve the drug. That that doesn't happen very often. Because hmm. it's too subjective. Too subjective, too loosey-goosey. And yet what you want to do fundamentally is get people better. So if people feel better, we should develop that drug. We should. And, 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 and you know, in the rheumatologic field, people... People are using those types of endpoints. It's just companies get scared of that because they don't know how the FDA is going to respond. So these are really the issues, right? We need the regulatory people and the companies to figure out what is the pathway to get a drug approved. And then once that happens, all these drugs out there will become easily available to us. Can I ask again about the interleukin-6? Do you think if we could turn that off, we would feel better? I do. I think it's possible. How does one go about doing that? Is there a number I can call? Uh, yeah, I can, you know, there, there, there are companies out there and there, and I don't want to get anyone in trouble because they're actually working with us and they want to do this, but they really want us to figure out how to measure this stuff. That's very promising. It's promising. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I think uh, a subset will respond to anti-L6, a subset will respond to IVIG, which will get rid of autoantibodies. A subset will, will respond to anti-EBV. Some get will respond to antivirals. I, I I think all this stuff. Some even may get vaccine. What do you? What is your experience with post COVID vaccines? Because that's all over the map. Yeah. Well, I for me, I had uh, COVID in December twenty twenty. I got diagnosed very quickly with long COVID. I had two vaccines, no problem. The booster knocked me off my feet with all my long Major. COVID back. Basically. Really, made yeah. you worse. Made me worse. Yeah, we we certainly have heard, heard that story too. Like I have cardiac symptoms, and all my cardiac my heart went nuts for about two weeks, and I was just bedridden. Oh, that's scary. Whereas I had the first two vaccines, and was at probably at some of my worst points of long COVID after both, and I have been told that I can't get the booster because I obviously have such an adverse reaction to the spike protein or whatever it is that drives this. Okay. Well, that's concerning. I think uh, I've heard other people, I've heard people get worse, I just, but the, kind of the, the, the emergent stories that will make people better. So I think a lot of people are doing it. There's a, there's a nice study from the Arcadia medical record system showing that if you get COVID and then have a vaccine in the first four weeks versus the next four weeks versus the next four weeks, the sooner you get a vaccine after COVID, the more less likely you are to get long COVID. But I didn't think you were supposed to have it too close to having COVID. Right. But some people did in the study. In this country, you're not allowed to have it until three months. I think it's three months. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but that's preventing long COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That's very different than reversing long COVID, which is what happened with you guys when you got the vaccine. So that's, that's different. And, and do you think we're going to be in a situation where some people with long COVID without treatment do get better what's the situation how do we compare it to hiv in that sense because are we all going to be looking to require long-term treatment medication something that either suppresses the autoantibodies or right. dampens the inflammation uh, that i have no idea <laughs> hiv is i don't want to make too much of a hiv is very different because it's a virus that persists for life for sure that virus will go crazy in a person if they stop their meds. So the medications shut down the virus um, in HIV. In, in long COVID, if there's, a, if there's any virus around, it's not much. Um, but if, if it's there and it's causing problems, then, 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 yeah, perhaps an antiviral will be needed. Isn't it totally shocking to you that this kind of virus has just been let rip in the entire world? I mean, we're looking at something that potentially could bring down our life expectancy. Oh, yeah. Governments are beginning to worry about this. Do you think they are? I do, yeah. Do you think they're beginning to become aware? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm involved in an initiative in which we're trying to figure out, um, you know, how what how to define disability, its impact on the workforce, its impact on the healthcare system. Um, you know, everyone has been understandably focused on acute COVID and people being hospitalized for the, you know, the various different severe symptoms associated with acute COVID, including all the cardiopulmonary stuff. 
I think now that we're getting past that first part of the pandemic, people are beginning to understand that the long COVID is going to have a huge impact on society. The length of the study of their cohort is quite remarkable to be following those people over two years. But I do have slight issues with some of the other studies that one of them that he cited as well, the Seattle study that seemed to only cover a three month period post COVID and gathering a huge amount of data about long COVID in the three months post COVID, I don't think is necessarily representative of all of us people who have long COVID who have had it for months and years. He was very specific about that we still need to sort of build this definition and work on this these markers. I think we do need in our studies to be very careful that we're looking at the correct demographics. Yes, and I think he set that out, out quite clearly. It's kind of terrifying right now how many people I know have COVID again. Yeah, and I'm reading article after article of scientists saying, you know, it's not a bad thing, you know, infections are up, but hospitalizations are down, so the vaccines are working. But after our conversation with Anthony Leonardi last week, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, I know. You know, with the damage to our T-cells and ongoing infections create more damage. And I'm noticing people who don't have long COVID having weird symptoms 12 weeks post-COVID that they can't explain. So maybe they're not quite in the situation as us that they need diagnosis, but vertigo in the middle of the night or a sudden onset of insomnia. I, I think that we're going to start to see correlation between those weird symptoms and that damage in our T cells. Yeah, and it's the entire generation. Everyone. Everyone. But more and more research being done, more and more um, studies coming out, um, lots of work by a lot of people gives me hope. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.